friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears, ladies and gentlemen, you are tuned to the MC Lars podcast, the best podcast there is, the greatest podcast that you could be listening to right now. <laughs> Today's Monday, August 5th, this is episode 49, and I wanted to say my music video with Megaran and Dan Bull went live last week, it's called Julius Caesar, and my first line from that song is how I start the podcast, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears and I'll speak to them. I've come to bury Caesar, not to praise him, lying bloody on the steps because we could not save him. That's how my rap goes. Anyway, the video's cool. Uh, Dan and his friend Nick edited the video. We shot it when we were out in the UK. I'm really happy with it. And I'm, it's really cool. Dan has a lot of subscribers on his channel, so we've gotten a lot of views. And um, it's gotten a great reaction. So it's cool. It's real cool when you collaborate with different friends in different countries. This week... We've got another British friend. So back to back. This week is Faceometer. Next week is Dan Bull. I was in the UK for the Robot Kills 10-year anniversary tour with Mega Ran, Cuckoo Kangaroo, and Ruled by Raptors. And we hung out with Dan Bull. Hung out with my man, Will Tattersdale, a.k.a. Faceometer. Will's a musician, a professor, a writer. His book that just came out, well, came out semi-recently, was his PhD dissertation. It's called Science, comma, Fiction, comma, and the Fin de Siècle periodical press. I don't know if I said the, those French words correctly, but basically he explained that means the end of the 19th century. So he talks about how that was the era of people like Oscar Wilde, Schopenhauer's philosophy influencing everyone. And um, he talks about the early years of science fiction. And Will is a very interesting guy. I love talking to him about culture, literature. We have an interesting talk about Hamilton and how he felt like when he saw that it related to nerdcore and me talking about how I felt about it, what I liked about it. Uh, what surprisingly was my least favorite part of the musical, um, not to say I didn't like it, but there was like a section of it that I I found like that was not surprising to me, but was surprising to him. Um, but Will I met when I was, right after I studied in Oxford back as part of my undergrad, I came back and I would do shows in the UK and he came to my show at the Zodiac and he waited, he gave me a CD, he talked about his music, and I thought he was really interesting, sweet guy, very original guy, I thought his music was cool, and he asked me to collaborate with him. So we did a song, we ended up doing some shows together, and we became friends. He came to LA right after he finished his dissertation, and we worked on some music for a kid's project, and some of those songs came out, Some he put some of the stuff on his album, one of the beats became like a Patreon song, but it was cool, like working together on music just for a week. But anyway. I love the fact that like I can travel around the world and I love the fact that this podcast is a medium that allows me to sit down with my friends and be like, okay, what do you think about this? And even though we recorded this a few months ago, it still feels really relevant. Will is a funny, smart dude. I love him. And when I get to see him, it's dope. And he's, I did a guest lecture at the University of Birmingham at his class two tours ago and uh, he just works hard. So it was cool to talk to him for an hour about his music and the new Faceometer album, which I hope will drop soon. His stuff is all on Bandcamp, and I was like, yo, Will, you need to get it on Spotify. I want to be playing on Spotify, but that's selfish. Bandcamp's cool. Sometimes the whole like transference of everything to the bigger digital platforms is annoying for some musicians because they just want to work on the music and get it to the people. A lot of bands are like that, like Grand Buffet, one of my favorite hip-hop groups from Pittsburgh, who I talk about a lot on this podcast. You can only find them on Bandcamp. This dude, Mostel a rapper who I grew up with in the Monterey Bay who makes music. This stuff's only on Bandcamp. Faceometer, only on Bandcamp. I'm not mad at it. Check it out. We have a song together. You'll hear it at the end of this podcast. This week's episode is brought to you by the Patreon supporters. As always, shout out to the new ones, Josh, Jeff, and Das Smith. 
Shout out to the old ones, Amber, Triel, and Larry Fine. Larry Fine is a friend of ours from Pittsburgh who always rolls through. He just did the keto diet and lost like 200 pounds, and I didn't recognize him in his little suit at the show with I Fight Dragons. What's up, Larry? Larry's tight. Larry's fine, and uh, he's a good friend. But everyone, all those Patreon supporters, love you all to death. Thank you very much. I got new music coming. Got a tour with the Aquabats this September. Let me drop the info on the dates. Of course, as always, your portal for live nerdy hip-hop events is nerdcotour.com. We're playing Indianapolis September 11th, Detroit September 13th, Buffalo the 14th, Charlotte the 16th, Richmond the 17th, Boston the 18th, Asbury Park the 19th, and then Warsaw the 20th. And then I got a tour in October with a band I can't announce, but I will be announcing this week. We're doing the West Coast. Life is good. I feel blessed. Seeing the Julius Caesar get a cool reaction on Dan's channel makes me want to keep my YouTube grind up, bring back the hatchet chats, do more videos that I can do more quickly. I don't know. You know, YouTube is tight. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. But in the meantime, we're going to talk to Will Tattersdale, and then we'll check in with y'all at the end. Thank you for listening. This is my wonderful interview with Dr. Will Tattersdale, a.k.a. Faceometer, a.k.a. Tom Waits fan, a.k.a. one of my favorite peeps. Peace. Hi, everyone. Hello. I'm here with Will Tattersdale, <laughs> friend, homie, teacher, musician, mm -hmm. a.k.a. Faceometer, a.k.a. professor of literature at University of Birmingham, a.k.a. published author, a.k.a. <laughs> husband and stepfather, a.k.a. handsome boy. <laughs> That's, that, that might be the nicest introduction I've ever had. You should just have that play whenever you walk in the classroom. <laughs> I'm going to make all my students listen to this. Dr. Will Tattersdale. That's right, yeah. That's what's up. That is what's up. Um, you did your master's at Oxford. I did. And we connected in 2006 at what was then the Zodiac. That's right, and yes. you brought me your CD, I, I think. I did. I was, I was one of those people who was like, oh, he's an artist I admire. I'm going to give him my demo tape. Yeah, and, that was tight. And then we became friends forever. Friends for life. That's the dream. That's what everyone thinks is going to happen when they when they give a demo tape to somebody. I remember when we played that venue. It was probably summer of 2006 or fall of 2006. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, sometimes when people want to give you their demo, they want to they want to cut to the front of the line and ignore that there's a line of people who want to buy shirts and want the, the artist to be very present and excited about it. But it's hard when there's a line of people behind and you're trying to do your business. You were so sweet that you hung out and then when everyone left, you're like, hi, I'm Will. I want to tell you about my music and da, da, da. And it was cool because it was calm at that point. And I was really excited to meet you. I was really excited to talk to you because it was like, there was time. I was like, this guy's interesting. You did that that's, so well, Will. That's interesting. I, I, I have a slightly different memory of it because I, I think the venue were kind of done and they were trying to like sweep up all the plastic beer cups <laughs> and like move people away. Um, and I was really, really, I, I, I was, I was really nervous because I have, I've done, you, you're, you're not quite the only person I gave a demo tape to, uh, in my, uh, career to use that word, but, um, I, but I hate it. I hate doing it. I, I'm very conscious of how awful it is. And, um, I was, 
I, I just remember being like, the venue's going to kick me out in a minute, but I'm going to hate myself later if I don't do it. So I was just like, ah, hello. <laughs> so they were like, were they yelling at you? They, uh, not at me specifically, but I think there was definitely, you know, the, the like quite large guys they hire to kind of make sure the room gets empty nice yeah. and fast. They were kind of on the horizon, those people. <laughs> the, you know, especially with bigger shows, they can be brutal here. They can they want to get home. They're, they're on the clock. Their hour's yep. done. They yep. want to go home and whatever. Go to bed. So they're not going to care that like someone is so excited to meet one of their favorite artists. I, I, I'm, you, I've seen, I've been at other shows where it's been really brutal, actually, like yeah. how quickly they get people out. And it's a bit of a, I feel a bit iffy about it because now that, now that so much of, uh, of, uh, of an artist's income is, is from merch sales and so many of those happen directly after a show yeah like it it puts a real bottleneck on your kind of the place where you earn it's yeah and it's i don't know what it is about maybe there's like really strict curfews here or something or uh, they've been it, i remember like the bowling for soup shows there's just kids who are so excited to meet them they're just like uh, just you gotta go home like mm. pulling people out i think it's just i don't know i guess it's maybe it's a health and safety thing they're not insured after 11 p.m or it's not like that in the states then it's not as bad, but I guess in the states, well, that's a good question. In the states, I, the show, I, the bigger bands I've opened for, it's not like a a, a theater with three thousand people. Mm. You know, a big show I'll play in the US would be like a few hundred. Mm. So maybe with this size of people, you have to keep it moving. But MC Large show, never a problem. <laughs> <laughs> not recently. <laughs> we uh, then we went on tour together. We did. This uh, this is fast forwarding a few years. Well, you 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 missed a bit because first I made you guest on a track from an album. But I was, that was your pitch. On at that time. It, that's that, that's right. I um, I can't quite remember. I can't the quite remember how maze. I did this now. The irritating maze. I think I just emailed you and was like, "Would you please, would you please sing this rap that I wrote?" But did you tell me the concept there at the Zodiac or whatever? I, can't, I don't think so because I don't think I would have plucked up the nerve to ask you to to guest on a track like on on a first meeting. That would have felt to a British person that's that's very forward, you know. <laughs> that is, yeah, you know, it's like um, these days, people. I don't know, like people asked to collaborate through social media and stuff but mm. having a face-to-face connection is a lot more real and, and and you have to have a lot of chutzpah you know that word yeah yeah to, yeah. to do that but as well you don't want to collaborate you don't necessarily want to collaborate with someone just because you admire their work you know like you you have to be you have to be confident that they're the right person for for the, for the track you're working on and that there's that relationship there and that it kind of makes sense um and then I, I think, and actually, it must be because I was writing writing the irritating maze. Took years. I wrote it in little bits, and I only started working on that bit after, um, after we had first got in touch. And then it was sort of like, ah, oh, this is the, maybe maybe Lars would agree to be on this. He'll probably say no, but let's see what happens. And then, yeah. And I said yes. You said yes. Well, you know what? This is this rarely happens. You wrote my parts. I did. So it was like a matter of. How could I say no? <laughs> because you sent me the music, you wrote well, your parts. I, I, I was, I, I was, gonna, there was going to be a rap there anyway, and I was gonna, I was gonna do it if you wouldn't. But I'm glad you did it because it's much better. <laughs> What's the context? So it's the story is a man who wants to marry a woman, and to marry her, he has to do this task. But instead of like the Odyssean like epic task it's like annoying little things he has to accomplish that, that's right the idea is that if you if it, it, the idea is it was sort of about it's a song about uh, I, I don't write love songs i, I not I, not because i don't like them but i just think a kind of gesture oriented kind of um big dramatic heroic kind of approach love to, songs have you say so they kind of like make it generic and simplified 
That's yeah. why you don't want to write a love song. Yeah. Whereas to me, then and now, the, the, the being in love was, was about dealing with lots of little tiny, irritating things. Um, so I thought, okay, what if, what if we had this fantasy story where instead of, um, instead of being, uh, instead of having to defeat the troll and like climb the impossible pyramid and deal with the, with the maze of rotating mirrors or whatever, um, what if it was just a, a labyrinth full of stuff like, um, when you get a, b- a bottle of milk and the plastic seal is a little bit annoying and it comes off in your hand, but the milk is still closed and then you have to get scissors to kind of open the milk. I don't know if this happens in America. It's a, it's a big... The plastic top. It's, it's a big social problem in Britain. Um, <laughs> probably the worst thing going on here right now, he says in, in early <laughs> April 2019. Hey. Um, but but, but so, so, so the idea was that there's a, a maze made of those things. And the only person who could get through that maze is not the big muscular hero with the sword, but a, a data entry clerk from Stafford. <laughs> Um, and uh, he manages to get through the maze. And, we should. And I just thought like, we should end a podcast with that song. So, yeah, sure. As a throwback. <laughs> what are the lyrics? Um, okay, so it's. I haven't. I haven't played this for a while either. I think it's sixteen-page long entrance forms instead of deadly monsters. <laughs> <laughs> unearthed static handrails and junk communiques which is a bit of a cheeky rhyme and stuff you can't quite find that you had really recently replacing brutal blades in the irritating maze that's how it goes and then so the instant clown posse have a song called the amazing maze and i would always say hey will i'm so happy about our song amazing maze blah blah, blah. you be like lars it's the irritating maze you, you, you've always been very nice in in remember you every time we meet you recall it and you usually get every detail of it wrong but it's Except it's, today. Very, it's very flattering that you remember it at all <laughs> <laughs> that, so that album was, was that your debut album? It was the first full-length album I did, yeah, in 2009 it came out. To Infinitive Split was called, which is a um, which is both a grammar joke and a Star Trek joke because I wanted to sell as few as possible. Um, in <laughs> which goal I was successful. Explain the Star Trek. Uh, well, well, it's because it's that um, it, it, it's that line to boldly go, the famous Star Trek thing, is a, is a split infinitive. It's grammatically incorrect. It should be to go boldly. Oh. Um, or boldly to go would be even better. But can it, isn't it an adverb? So, How you go is bold? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's about, it's about the two has to be next to, uh, it has to be oh. next to the go. Oh, okay. Um, because oh, the, the, boldly because the, to go. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> the two and the go are, are part of the same grammatical so proposition. So reference to that. That is, it is a Star Trek reference, yeah, and a, and a grammar correction. Two infinitive split. Oh, split I get it. Split infinitive oh would be to put the word boldly in the middle of the two and the go. <laughs> so what kind of I like you? This is why I realize you have all these <laughs> deep, your, oh, your stuff, listen to your stuff, it, it's it's on repeated listens. It mm. continues to gratify. Oh, thank you very and, much. And I sort of feel like we are mere versions of ourselves in that, like, I've always loved academia mm. and talk to you over the years about oh what would it be like to do academia and do music less and you always been like what would it be like to do music more and less academia absolutely so yeah. we kind of have this mirror of our lives over the past 13 years that's been this very beautiful gratifying important thing i think that's true um and I, and i think that yeah um and, and and i think that what we have in common because my my music is very different from yours but i think where it where it connects is in is is that I think we're both committed to being lyrically interesting. Yeah. Um, and I think that comes from or is expressed in the academic side of, our, of both of our lives as well. And our love of literature. Yeah, of course. And you're talking about um, uh, love songs. I was thinking of Astrophil and Stella yes. as like a way to generically manifest how romantic pop culture love should have been expressed back in the day. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, there are so many, you know, there are... 
There are so many love songs. I, I, I do have a favorite love song. What do you go Gosh. to? What are you thinking of when you think of a love song? I mean, I, you know, the song I sample for Hey There, Ophelia. Oh, uh, yeah. I've got nothing to do but hang around and get screwed up on you. <laughs> love can be like a, a response to boredom or existential disenfranchisement. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. How about you? Um, for me, it's Tom Waits. Um, oh, Waits. He's, he's got a song called Fish and Bird, which is about a bird, a uh, bird. Uh, 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 falling in love with a whale and their love is impossible because they can never exist in the same medium. Um, <laughs> we both chose quite depressing love songs. <laughs> you are, you're married. How long have you been married? Where are we now? Five years. And your wife's an academic? She is. How did you meet? Uh, we were on the same PhD program in London. Holler. Yeah. And so you both ha- could relate to each other's massive minds. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's certainly one way of putting it. Each of us understood the trauma that the other was going through. Is, is another <laughs> like you survive war together. Yeah, it is a little bit like not to be over dramatic, but it is it is a little bit horrible being an academic in certain ways. Um, in other ways, a huge privilege, but there are nasty sides to it. Um, What's the worst thing about it? Um, good lord, um, <laughs> we don't have to dwell on this. <laughs> do we, do we, am I only allowed to pick one thing? Um, <laughs> the the the, wor- the worst thing about it is that we make it very difficult for ourselves. Um, of course, it should be hard in, in in certain ways, but fundamentally. So I I work in English literature, as you know. Um, my job is to my job is to talk to people about literature and to write things about literature and to kind of help people understand it. Um, and that shouldn't be that that shouldn't be the stress explosion that it is. That that's a nice job. That and and, and yeah. from the outside to anybody else. I have a nice job, but we we fill ourselves with we fill ourselves with weird rules and committees and um, metrics and uh, uh, all kinds of other things. Particularly in this country, but in America as well, um, we just put a lot in between us and our students, and a lot in between us and our writing. And um, sometimes it's very hard, and particularly kind of particularly mentally quite difficult the the mental health rate among phd students is Mm. is pretty upsetting actually um and only certain kinds of people can thrive in that sort of environment and they're not always the kinds of people who are doing the most interesting work and i've so the thing that stresses me out about it is the number of extremely good people i've seen drop out at, at whatever stage in the process wow because there isn't a job for them or that they can't handle a PhD stress or, you know, at whatever point in the pipeline they leak out. Um, but a lot of talent goes missing. I mean, again, the, the parallels with music are quite distinctive. <laughs> well, and it's also about like, what, marketing yourself once you have the job. Absolutely. It's so much about, right? That yeah. not just having your PhD, but your brand as an academic. Yeah, absolutely. And so the most the most useful thing anyone ever said to me while I was training was that um y- you know from the outside you think of a PhD as a, a vocational qualification. You get the you get the PhD then you get a job. But um but they said it's more like going to acting school, you know, uh, mm. after that you've got to audition for parts and you've got to hustle and you you have your portfolio and your headshot and kind of <laughs> you 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 make the best of it. That was a joke about the headshot, but everything else everything else is 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 real. You're always kind of um trying to because every job is different. Yeah. Um every university wants something different. There's no such thing as like a lecturer, a professor. Um you you're always trying to narrate yourself into how you fit wherever you're going. Um and it's yeah, it's it's tough. 
sometimes. What was your PhD dissertation on? It was about science fiction at the end of the 19th century in the 1890s and early 1900s. Um, so the, the famous writers from that time, H.G. Wells, for example, Jules Verne is at the end of his career then. Um, but what I was interested in was the, the slightly lesser known names, the, the people who have vanished now a little bit. Um, and I wanted to go back and read them in the, the, the magazines because at, at that point there, there weren't science fiction magazines yet. Um, in fact, science fiction was not yet a word. Um, and so science fiction was just appearing and people didn't really know what it was yet, just in amongst all the normal stuff in the general interest publications. Um, and so what, one of the big things I'm interested in as a scholar is the relationship between uh, science and popular culture. Um, and it was interesting to me that, you know, there was a time when science fiction wasn't niched off where it was, you know, in the mainstream, if you like. Um, and I wanted to... I, I wanted to learn about that and to understand about it because um, especially at this moment where I think science fiction is creeping back into the mainstream again, um, it's it's a part of the history of the genre that's sometimes overlooked. And um, didn't am I right that your your book is about dinosaurs? The, the one I'm working on at the moment is, yeah. What was the one you published though? Is that your dissertation, the book that got published? The book, the book that's already out is... is, is uh, 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 a, a considerably improved version of that of what I just said. Yeah, okay. so it's about science fiction in in eighteen nineties and nineteen hundreds magazines. Wow! And our our friends Richard and George, yeah, have a copy of it. They do they? Yeah, they they ordered it online for real, and they showed me it. That's and I didn't finish reading it, but I was impressed. Well, I'm you. I'm very offended. That's awful because another another thing. I mean, since we're since we're whining about academia, yeah. uh, another big problem that we face at the moment in scholarship is is that the publishing industry like the music industry is is music publishing industry is is in crisis um and one of the really annoying consequences of that is books are really expensive i mean my book costs i, I think 70 pounds um i don't but to recoup its cost it has to be so high exactly well yeah yeah, yeah exactly there's a there's a cheaper paperback version out now but i don't i'm you know so you say rich and george have a copy and i'm like that's awesome but also like it makes me a bit uncomfortable that because I know how much it costs and I don't right. believe that it's worth that much money, <laughs> frankly. Um, I mean, it's, you know, I stand by the research in it. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But, it, you know, there's a really odd, um, there's a really odd dimension of, of academic publishing where everything costs too much. And the, the reason is because they know that most of the copies of that book are going to be bought by university libraries that have very oh. big budgets. And so... What's the paperback cost? Uh, about £25 lot but that's cheaper it's it's a it's a lot i mean it's it's three it's three decent novels right um and it's it's not as good as three novels <laughs> what's it called again um it's called science fiction there's a comma between those two things right science yeah. comma fiction and the fantasy periodical press because another rule about academic publishing is that your title has to be as boring and inaccessible as possible Wait, what's the last part in the what the fin de siècle which is which is oh. a technical term for the the last decade of the of the 19th century the 1890s oh. but in america you call the mauve decade sometimes or um uh yeah, or or the Gaslight era. Um, it has a lot of names. The time of Oscar Wilde, right, right, um, and and friends. Um, you love dinosaurs. I do love dinosaurs. What's your favorite dinosaur? Um, today, um, today I'm very excited by a dinosaur called Sarcosaurus, um, which is a, a a small theropod, um, 
And the reason I'm excited is because I'm currently organizing an exhibition about dinosaurs in art um, with a paleontologist colleague of mine at Birmingham University. And and it's a um, it's a dinosaur that we only have a very few bones of, but we have just organized to get some of those 3D printed for the new exhibition so that people can handle them and, uh, and start cool. printing the replicas. And I saw a picture of those today. So today I'm on Team Sarcosaurus. What is a theropod? A theropod is um, a, a whole big old family of dinosaurs, um, the ones that the ones that eventually give rise to birds, uh, uh, the ones that... Um, include Tyrannosaurus, Velociraptor, um, the oh. carnivorous binocular vision clory ones. They walk on two feet, a lot of them? Yeah. Okay, cool. What is thera, thera, pod being foot, thera being... Oh, yes, oh dear. I think a thera flu. Yeah. Now, I should know that, but I don't. And because I'm a crap scholar, I'm going to look it up on Wikipedia hey. right now. Um, I remember, I, while you're doing that, I wanted to say once I was... I did a was working on a book proposal and you were kind enough to give me notes and I cite all my sources and you're like Lars, my biggest problem, your sources are all Wikipedia sources. <laughs> That's good. I I learned that you have to go deeper. You do. You do. Ther- um, um, yes, Therion is is the Greek. It means wild beast. I didn't know that. Wild beast foot. There okay, and that's why they're standing on their feet as opposed to all I four. Would, I would guess. Yeah, I would guess. Um, well, so you. I'm sure you teach lots of different courses. Yep. What are some of the courses you're teaching now? Um, so the the thing I'm the, the thing I've just finished teaching a a, a final year undergraduate uh, module that I wrote about alternate history science fiction. So things like um, things like Hitler wins, right? The, or or the Confederacy wins the the Civil War in America. Uh. Um, the most famous book of that kind is probably Philip K. Dick's The Man in the High Castle. Um, which was a, a TV series. Which was Yeah, which yeah. is a TV series at the moment. Um, the, the, the book is excellent, if any of you would care to give it a try. Uh, so, so yeah, um, I'm interested in... Because science fiction is often thought of wrongly as being the, the genre of the future, right? Um, so I'm interested in what happens when you use science fiction to talk about the past, what happens if you go back into the past and, and make an alteration. So I've been teaching a course about that um, for third-year undergraduates and master's students this term. Um, and the other course that I'm involved with that, that I'm the proudest of at the moment is a, is uh, called The Uses of Genre, and it's basically a genre fiction 101, you'd probably call it in America. Um, and so it's a big year-long course with two weeks on science fiction, two weeks on horror, two weeks on romance, mm. two weeks on chick lit, two weeks on the Western, you know, uh, and, uh, you, you know, just trying to trying to throw as many popular genres at it as possible and teach teach people that it doesn't you know, it doesn't have to be Shakespeare. Shakespeare's great, but you can you can you can study anything, and that's the great thing about um, doing literature. It's called the uses of genre. The uses of genre. Yeah. So it's kind of like how genre, um, like I would think in music, it's like Weird Al talks about. It's the clothes that a song, a pop song, wears. Absolutely. So it's a similar thing. Very similar. Yeah. yeah. Very similar. I mean, John John Frown writes about genre as being um, not not um, a, a, not a series of pigeonholes into which one text goes variously well, but but as a as a thread within a text that you know you might find mm. some science fiction in this book rather than it being a science fiction book, um, and 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 so that every book has lots of genres in it. It's just some are some are much more visible than others. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, so, what's an example of a very subtly defined genre? Um, that's uh, a, a genre that's hard to find. Do you mean? Yeah, or? well, one that like I would imagine science fiction. Mm. There are tropes that kind of make it very clear this is science fiction. Yeah, where is something might be like, oh, it's I don't know, mystery. It seems like no, that would be clear too. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's hard because I think science fiction is actually quite slippery. I mean, there are some, you know, when there's a big, when there's a big ring world or, or like 50,000 spaceships invading the past, then it's easy. But, um, but if you look at something like Kate Atkinson's novel Life After Life, which is about, um, which is about a, a, a woman living her life through the Second World War over and over again. Every time she dies, she starts again and she gets to keep going until she gets it right, basically. Sort of a big mm. version of Groundhog Day. Um, and... Atkinson Groundhog D Day. Exactly. Hey. <laughs> exactly. D Day is the one thing she doesn't do, actually. Okay. But, but Atkinson is sort of manifestly not interested in science fiction. But at the same time, that's such a science fictional idea. You know, it's an idea that that science fiction had worked through so thoroughly, even before the Bill Murray film. Right. That it's kind of who gets to say is the question that interests me. Who decides whether it's science fiction or not? Um, Margaret Atwood is very keen on the idea that she's not writing science fiction. And and I think she's wrong about that. I think The Handmaid's Tale and other books are, in fact, science fiction texts. Dystopian, so futuristic. Yeah, yeah. You know, I remember when I was watching The Handmaid's Tale with um, my wife, it was... When they in the first scene where I'm not going to spoil anything, but the first scene where they they have their hoods down and they're in the grocery store and the guards are there with the guns and they're on their walkie talkies, mm-hmm. I was like, this is a lot. Reminds me of Star Wars in that it's like these, you know what I mean? Like the Sentinels with their walkie talkies monitoring these people who yeah. are just trying to live their day to day life. Well, it's the it's the other way around, right? It's that it's that Star Wars reminds you of that kind of authoritarian police state culture that yeah you know science fiction is always always about us now it's it's never it's very seldom seriously a prediction of the future it's always a a reflection i think of 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 the moment we're in and how badly we're making a mess of it right Um, (laughs) and and it's interesting how there's this um essay I, i referenced when i talked to this I interviewed a professor at University of Kentucky who's a uh-huh. David Foster Wallace scholar. Oh, yeah. And um, th- this is essay by Chuck Klosterman about what defines the canon and how we make the canon and how, like, why Moby Dick, when it came out, was kind of not really recognized. But later it became yeah. this metaphor for 19th century manifest destiny and stuff. And yeah. I imagine with science fiction, in your research, looking at the past, you, you're you're struck with this question of why things are canonized and like why we talk about H.G. Wells and why we might not talk about some of the lesser known authors. It's it's absolutely true. I mean, who gets who gets to choose again? It's the, it's the same question. How how is it how is a canon made and unmade as well? Because a canon is a is is not a list of dead authors. It's a it's a living, breathing thing, change, changing constantly. Um, yeah, it's it's really interesting because it it works the other. There are authors who are huge in their own time. Um, Walter Besant, who you probably haven't heard of, um, one of the best-selling authors of the late nineteenth century. You know, the Dan Brown of his time. No one's heard of him now. Mm. Uh, just completely vanished. Mm. Um, so that, that that sort of um, that. That, that means you sort of end up thinking, okay, of the of the writers currently around, who's who are we still going to be talking about in fifty, a hundred, two hundred years? And so who, you can't tell. Do you think we'll be talking about J.K. Rowling um, in hundred years? I think you can't tell. I suspect that we won't, um, uh-huh. because um, I don't want to. I don't want to bring a world of pain down on myself here. Um, but I, I I think that um, I think that she is as someone who went to university in Exeter. As someone who went to yes, yeah, I did. Where she yeah. she wrote a lot of those books. I, I I mean, I think what's you know what's what's remarkable about what's remarkable about her work is the extent to which she captures and then completely ignores the popular zeitgeist, right? So she she captivates a generation, more than one generation, um, but has then been 
trashing her relationship with them uh, online and in articles for the better part of a decade. Oh, trashing her audience? Yeah, not not directly, but just her continual desire to edit and re-edit her world. Like is, George is, Lucas. Is, yeah, yeah, is really alienating the people who are the most committed to her work. Um, and it's a, it's a really interesting... So we have this, we, we have this idea in, in literary criticism, you'll know about it, the death of the author, mm. um, which is a, a, a French idea from the 1960s. It's a bit dated in certain ways, but the idea is basically... Um, the, the idea is basically that once a, once a text is published, and this applies to music too, you know, it's, it's not yours anymore. You can talk if you want about what you meant when you were writing it, but ultimately if someone else takes something else away from it and they can, they can evidence that and it's convincing, um, then it, it, it doesn't matter. You don't get a say in the interpretation of what, of what you did, of the art that you made. Sure. Um, and... and if you look at if you look at groups of authors, they fall pretty quickly out into the people who try and control their work after it's after it's out there, and the people who have the maturity to sort of let it go and understand that that's what happens when you make art. Um, and um, yeah, I think you know you mentioned George Lucas; it's it's a good example, right? It just it can't can't let go of that universe, can't recognize that especially in something like a science fiction universe that so, that actually a huge amount of the creative work is done by the fans and the readers and you know the directors and the costume people and you, you know there's th- yeah. that's such a collaborative project there isn't one person in charge of it sure and it's also like um someone who was litigious about his world and was kind of precious about his output jd salinger yeah right that the guy who wrote the the fiction i don't know if the man or woman wrote a wrote a fiction about Holden Caulfield as an adult, they sued him yeah. for her to stop, right? I do I do remember this story, but I can't I can't remember. To who set it was a either. watchmaker yeah. or is that to kill a mockingbird? That, that's to kill that's to kill that's the Harper Lee Her actual sequel. Uh prequel. Prequel in, in fact. But uh, uh. but again, um released under slightly dubious circumstances, I think it's fair to say. What happened? Um well uh, I, I I perhaps I barely understand this, so I should be careful what I say, but um, my understanding is that she, you know, she had this draft in her back pocket for however many decades, and was persuaded to publish it in a very high profile and I'm sure profitable uh, way when she was quite advanced in years. Mm. And um, I think the question has been raised about whether an earlier Harper Lee would have allowed that to happen. Interesting, um, because she resisted it for so long. So yeah, it's. I mean, it's a difficult thing. And also, writing is. Like any creative endeavor, it's something that takes discipline and focus. Yep. And not every author is going to. It must be a hard thing. Like people like Mark Twain, he was a, allegedly not a very good judge of what were, was going to be his canonized important works. Mm-hmm. And so it's like you. If it's probably some element of like, if you want to control that world, you you feel like. Why do you remember just this one thing? Yeah. I want to be able to exert power over it. So therefore, this one thing I've created kind of um, that you like is still part of me. I don't, yeah. know. <laughs> I don't know. Well, let, let, let me ask you something, because you're, you're on tour at the moment doing the anniversary of this gigantic robot kills, right? Yes, is, sir. Is, is that right? Yeah. So how? So, so do you feel, uh, firstly, are you, are you changing that? Like, do, do you feel distant from that material? Has the temptation been as you perform it again to kind of move stuff around or is your view like no that's the album i released there it is well the cool thing is i'm glad you asked that the cool thing is 
if you're doing old stuff, you always want to do it in a new way. Mm. And so this band from Newcastle learn ruled by rappers, shout out to them. They learn this they learn the songs and they've added things that weren't in originally or they're playing it without the sample. So it feels like we're doing those songs in a, thing. in a new way. Yeah. I I've I've honestly like, you know, just rapping with the over the MP3s on the laptop is fun, but it's not doesn't feel new necessarily. Mm. That's why working with Mega Ran on the record, by the way, that you're on, you did the Yay. intro for. Hey. The, cru- the, the crucial, <laughs> the crucial element without which the whole thing falls apart. Some of you will recognize, some of you heard the record will recognize Will's beautiful voice on that. Hello. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting thing because like, obviously a lot of, most people I meet don't know what I've done in the past five years musically. Yeah. Which, unless they're super fans, but like, you know, like the younger kids who are like, they, they look like they're 30 and they're like, I first saw you and I was seven. You know what I mean? Wow. It's like, that's a bit of an exaggeration. But like yeah. this idea that, you know, I don't know, my older stuff is more known. Do you feel like that when you play people want to hear your older songs or do you feel like they love your whole canon? De- definitely. I mean, we, we should um, we, we should acknowledge to your audience that I function on a rather different scale from you musically and I have like 26 fans. <laughs> but, but, but... Um, that's and, a, that's not true. You're much more than and, that. And, and they and and, and and most of them are very um most of them are very awesome and sensitive and intellectual people. So they they put up with hearing new material. But I think um yeah, I think it's a natural tendency to to want to hear the stuff you know when you go to a show. Um, yeah. I, I I feel it in I feel it in myself definitely. Um, and I understand why. Yeah, people are like, yeah, get the classics out, uh, but but. But I also understand from the artist's perspective that thing of like, uh, I played the classics. I want to do something else, you know? You know, I think a great example of a touchstone of how to do this well is Weedus, right? Mm. Because they, they've they put out so many records in the past 20 years and, and 99% of the pop culture population knows their one hit. Yeah. So Brendan will... You probably you've you've been to Weedus shows. I have with you, yeah. Yeah, and they start with they'll start with the the opening the Teenage Dirtbag, and then they'll play all these songs that most people don't know. Yeah, and then they'll end with Teenage Dirtbag. But Brendan, he's so optimistic and cheery. He's like, yeah. hey, at least I get to play all these songs I love that you might not know, but but I wouldn't be here if you didn't know this one song. Yeah, he's I I remember I remember this because. It it struck me that he had such a good attitude towards it, and I remember when when I saw them, I was at the I think I was standing with you at the merch table, and they were playing loads and loads of songs that weren't Teenage Dirtbag, and and the crowd was being really good, um, and he kept every four or five songs, he would just be like, it's coming, <laughs> you, you know, he'd just be like, it's soon, it's soon, um, and and he he seemed to have really embraced that, whereas you know, I I can easily imagine how that situation would be very depressing if you chose to see it that way you know yeah or like he and also the fact that he's just someone who loves music yeah and i owe him a lot for co-writing a lot of the songs on robot kills Mm -hmm. and like um opening his heart to me and you know they play they they played at my wedding they played a rush song time stand still when we left the walked out out of the church wow (laughs) so i'm like dude we has played your wedding (laughs) that's like that's pretty good that's that's it doesn't get better than that does it that's amazing <laughs> in all full disclosure the priest nicks teenage dirtbag in the church because of the lyrics <laughs> <laughs> they said and he gave me this example he's like he said in the email i'm not trying to put throw anyone under the bus but he said it's like ginsburg doing a keatsian sonnet and i was like 
Ginsburg would gladly quote a Keatsian sonnet. I was like, come on, that's not, I, don't give me a, a literary reference about why. That's, yeah, that's a really strange thing to say. I think he was trying to say that there's like crossing genres is not what yeah. you do in the Episcopal Church. Well, and yeah, and that there's, yeah, <laughs> that the, the genre exists in, in, in space as well as, as well as in time, right? That's, that, that's that, totally the point. Yeah. yeah. That, that, you know, within, within these walls, this isn't, isn't appropriate. We got my, 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 my wedding, there was a, um, uh, there was a, a classical guitarist who played an arrangement of the Jurassic Park theme tune <laughs> that he'd done himself, and it was it was as as Jordan came down the aisle, and it was it was wonderful because um, uh, you you could see you could see the sort of ten percent of the crowd recognize the tune and get these really confused faces, <laughs> and everyone else was just like, "What a lovely melody!" This theropod walking down. Absolutely. You've been married five years. Yes. So when did your second record come out? Before you got married? Just after. So I was I was I was working on it. Um, I was working on recording it during that time. So at the beginning of the recording sessions, uh, Jordan, who's 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 American, still lived in America. We got married while she still lived out there, and then she came over, um, and and moved in with me uh, uh, a few months later. And during that time is when I was working on on. Um, the next album, the name of which I remember, it's called Why Wait for Failure. <laughs> right, right. And that you did on Kickstarter. I right? did, yeah. And um, that, the, Indiegogo, but Indiegogo. Yes. And that has the Tumbleweed song? It does, yes. Sound of the Tumbleweed. Whenever I see a Tumbleweed, I think of that song. Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> what I want. That's what I want. Um, yeah, that's um, that's still the most recent record. It's, yeah, five years old now. That's... But you have more more songs than just two records did you did a bunch of singles there are there are a lot there are a few little eps out there um the best of them yeah. is probably uh, called it's called the spooky ep it's a oh, halloween yeah. record um which irritating maze was originally not on or no 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 it was no the spooky ep was was years later and i did, I did that with two other people with um with max jones and sam taplin shout out to them um and 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 that's a collection of five songs about um about uh, goblins and ghosts and uh, and scary monsters that you kind of we 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 realized that the christmas market was locked down for music but we thought we thought we saw a niche <laughs> hey. so we wrote a halloween record and and sold ooh, a good couple of hundred copies of it and um um and I, uh, you, i'm still really really pleased with that one actually that's yeah. a, that's a nice piece of work um, isn't were the covers all like indi- individually drawn ghosts? No, they're, they're not individually drawn. Although, uh, yeah, um, uh, Max, one of the other songwriters who was involved with it, 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 drew a little ghost, and we just printed that onto some cardboard okay. to make the sleeves. Yeah. Um, I remember at one point you stayed with me in LA for like a week, and we mm-hmm. co-wrote for this project that is still is still. It's still being considered, but I remember that My was so fun. <laughs> yeah, fingers across. That was quite a while ago, but yeah. we were just doing demos all day with our friend Sam doing beats. Yep. And I remember, yeah, the riffs and oh man, that was fun just riding with you for a week. In it, was, LA. It, it was great. Yeah, it was great. It was one of those. Um, uh, yeah, I have, I have very fond memories of that. It was still the only time I've ever been to LA, so that that was nice. We went to see the space shuttle, if you remember, and we, and we went on the Ferris wheel and the roller coaster. We went on, on the, the Ferris wheel, yeah, um, and you insisted on getting one of those, um, one of those photos that they take on the Ferris wheel, of, <laughs> um, you know, the ones where they rip you off at the end. Yeah, yeah, that was. I still have that. Um, hey, that was fun, man. That was like a really like because we always through our friendship, we always would see each other for like. A few hours yep. every year. But T- today being one example today, of that. <laughs> right. But then there was that tour where you were on tour with us yep. and 
was it Kayflay was on that tour too? Uh, no, uh, no, that was um, that was with um, Failsafe, um, I think. Um, yeah, no, it was that was that that was Failsafe and uh, and you and DJ and you you guys were riding in my car and Failsafe had a big van and you were opening uh, for some on some of the shows but not all of them. Okay, yeah, yeah. and we were all over. Th- the uk yeah for the bit i did it was mostly it was mostly the south of england um but we did what did we do we did we certainly did chichester because i remember thinking that we were going to die when we were in that house with the tiger um and um well, but i should mention the tiger was not real yeah yes it was it was a plush tiger yeah. but it was it was kind of life-size plush tiger we were staying with this very um uh these these people that were like we're probably not going to wake up dead but it wasn't completely Wait, How did we certain. know them? Were they friends of Failsafe? I don't know. I, 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 wasn't really, I wasn't really in that part of the conversation. I just remember, right. being, I remember being quite pleased when we weren't there anymore. Um, I'm, uh, I'm sure they were fine. I was probably I just photo- young and panicking. You know? Will, I have a photo of you with the tiger and you look really scared. Yeah, I, I was quite scared that night. Um, but it was, it, was, it was fine because... I mean, this is, um, this is the other thing about, about music, especially kind of... Um, especially kind of circuit like scene music is um, how trusting everybody still is. Mm. Um, and I sometimes think about, I sometimes think about that in terms of like the barrier to access for women, for example, that that creates and kind of how you, you have to be comfortable with the idea that, yeah, you're just going to go and sleep in this stranger's house. And, and, right. and I don't know how, I don't know how bad your bad experiences have been of that. Uh, on the whole, of course, you trust the community and it works and it's amazing and very affirming. Sure. Um, but I imagine sometimes that it gets, it feels a little bit uh, ropey. Well, once we, once we, we played what Northampton and uh, the promoter was like, yeah, we have a place for you to stay. We're like, great. And it was the keyboardist of his band still lived with his mom in this council house. And she was just smoking cigarettes mm-hmm. and there was garbage everywhere. DJ mm-hmm. and I, and like in the morning leaving, people were like, like hassling us for money and i was like oh this is yeah she just got the travel lodge at this point i don't if i don't know someone i won't stay with them and even if i do know someone we usually don't want to impose i mean i mm. the 20s were full my 20s were full of like sleeping on couches on the floor sleeping i remember yeah you know sleeping near like cat litter boxes and all this stuff and i think that's the punk ethos is this idea of we're all in this together and it's interesting how the world has become more fragmented and locked down that maybe has become more of an important testament to humanity. Yeah. Than, you know, yeah. the live music scene, maybe. I agree with that. But definitely, I mean, I don't know. I was always, because, you, you know, cause I'm an academic, I was always quite a boring person. But they're, they're definitely, I, I, I hit an age, I think it was, um, I think it was probably 31. I want to interject. I think you're one of the least boring people I know. Oh, well. Andrew. <laughs> um, but, but, but definitely, you age out of your 20s, and then suddenly yeah. you're like, I can't sleep on this floor next to this cat litter box anymore. I just can't do it. Like, it happens really fast. Sure. <laughs> and like last night, I mean, not to be, you know, I'm not, a few nights ago, um, the, the fold out, I, this is going to sound like first world problems. The fold out couch in this nice Airbnb we rented wasn't mm. working. So I had to make a, a mattress bed on the floor with cushions. And I was like, oh, I'm too old for this. But I'm like, wait, at this point we've rented this Airbnb. Like we are, it's okay to occasionally have to sleep on the floor. Yeah, I don't yeah, like yeah, it, yeah. but it's not the end of the world. It's survivable, isn't it? And I think, yeah, I, I, I know what you mean about it getting... I know what you mean about it getting harder as well. I feel like I feel like since I started the 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 kind of the amateur level music scene in this country has has taken a few big hits, um, and uh, it's it's harder than it used to be. Uh, just to like 
just to get shows even in the first place yeah uh, to get people to come to shows i think is more difficult now um the 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 whole thing that the, the the grassroots in this country and i think america as well have have been really struggling this last decade um and it requires so much energy i'm sure you feel this as well you you need to you need to put so many calories into it um um that it's it sort of um I don't know, that it comes a point where you're on a floor next to a litter box and you think, no. <laughs> yeah, no, I know you mean, Will. And I think in 2003, when I, when I got my start over here, I was just blown away by how open and kind and compared to the U.S., easy it was to get shows. I also realized that I was doing something that was, you know, there's an air of Mike Skinner in the streets doing, yeah, like, of course. doing the rap Beth yeah. stuff and everything. It was like being this friendly, goofy, 20-year-old American kid was like this is different and and people in oxford especially were like yeah. oh we relate to this but we also like think it's cool but we also think it's like kind of a joke and yeah. i remember doing a i did a at the corpus christi college talent show where it was the college i was affiliated with yeah i remember i started and i was doing my dance moves and everyone was laughing like at the talent show and <laughs> and then when i started <laughs> rapping they i could tell they were starting to take it seriously and i was like this is such a great metaphor these people think i'm like silly and ridiculous and now they have a sense of humor about it yeah and i always have loved that about the music industry here and, and i guess there's something i'm very nostalgic about that time and place in british history of being in oxford at that time and yeah on the when hip-hop was kind of still an, a new thing here yeah. in that way yeah right? yeah um yeah i uh i still remember it's one, one of our conversations that influenced me the most um, years ago now, you would you were talking about how to be funny without being a joke. Um, yeah, I, re I remember that line. I think about it often because, yeah, I think I think of humor as something I use, not something I am. It's that genre conversation again. Um, I find comedy music and and comedy in general actually stand up. I, 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 um, difficult to like, um, but I, but I believe very strongly mm. in in teaching and in music in, in in being funny, but without cheapening your material. You know the challenge of that um i find that corpus scene so easy to picture <laughs> <laughs> they're like it's all like serious musicians in the yeah movie. yeah and people and are then, like ha ha oh. and then you turn up and, and i've been to you know yeah. i've been to these um you you, you know because because another thing you're playing acoustic music you you know you get to a lot of uh kind of sober house shows where everyone's like yeah oh yeah i'm just gonna play and i i, I remember i remember one particular show where the, the opening act was very tranquil very beautiful but also like very serious too serious um uh singer being like, oh yeah this is another song about someone who left left me uh, and it's like yeah okay fine and i thought okay i remember thinking what these guys need is is a song about a duck um <laughs> i have of which i have of which i have more than one uh for those of you who don't know my work and um uh and, and getting up there and just being like okay guys you know this is this is going to be different and that's going to be okay and 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 what i love is that most audiences come along with that actually mm. and, and for all that i have not been a commercial success as a musician if you give me a room with 50 people in it like it nearly always works because people actually once you've got them are are capable of kind of getting all of that which i really like well you're a very great performer and a very and there's no one in the world like you you're one of my favorite <laughs> musicians and um teaching is performance 
Absolutely. And, and, that's so true. And so it's like, that's a skill set that, yeah, it's cool how you've made your career build on your strengths and your passions and your yeah. interests. And um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I guess I, I just wondered, do you sometimes wish you, you did music more than teaching sometimes? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. I, I mean, but part, part of that... Part of that is that the grass is always greener, of course. Sure. Um, and I'm not. I've been very lucky in my academic career. I have a. I have a. I have a good job and nice colleagues, and I get to do a lot of work that I really like. Um, I do. Um, I do feel, especially in recent years, um, and I've become a parent as well. That, um, you know, that there's an artistic side of myself that is is malnourished at the moment. Um. But it's it's an energy thing, and you said it just then. Teaching and teaching and teaching and music use the same energy source. They're not the same, but they're powered from the same place. And if you spend all day doing one, you can't do the other one in the evening. You know, it's it's you, you can think, oh, I'll go home and write a song, but by the time you're there, you, you know, you can't do it because you teach for four hours, and four hours doesn't sound like a long work day. <laughs> but if you if you teach, but if you you know if you do a, if you did a four hour set, you would be tired at the right, end of it, yeah. right? And and and, it, and it, it's that you you got to be on for all of those four hours, um, and it is hard, and it um, it uh, and it it drains you, and it drains you creatively because it is a creative thing, um, and it is a performance thing, yeah, um, and and that makes um, and that makes running the two of them in parallel really difficult, um, because at the end of the day my employer pays my salary and so right it, you, you know if i have to choose one to do today it's nearly always going to be the teaching <laughs> do you do you have to spend a lot of time grading papers or do you have tas yes. uh no i do i do i've i've been lucky the last few years with the work allocation but there's but a lot of my job is marking and and, and because it comes at certain points of the year when the exams are that makes me effectively um non-existent in january and may basically yeah, I, yeah. I don't i'm i'm not I don't exist as a social entity in those two months. So we're lucky to, um, to be able to talk to you in April. In a yes, uh, this, is the, this is the calm before the storm. At the moment, this is the, they're, they're all writing those papers, so I okay. have a very quiet time and the students are very busy. And then they'll hand them in at the end of the month and uh, the great pendulum swings back to me. I wanted to say in that, this is just a, where my brain is at, in that sentence you referenced two Insane Clown Posse albums, probably have on I? purpose. The no, calm no not, not remotely. The I'm Calm afraid. Before the Storm was their... Um, album before they did the six jokers card which was the last in their first set and the pendulum was a compilation no of, of single singles they did for their comic books so that's where my mind goes I, you're always talking about insane clown posse but i i, I barely know i barely know them i need to spend I, more time listening i think they just weren't as popular in england i talked to a guy on my podcast yesterday this guy dan bull and he was saying one of the reasons for that is you know they wear clown makeup and mm. and anyone in in the UK and they're very serious about it. Yeah. So if you come to the UK like looking ridiculous and take yourself very seriously, people here would be like, they, 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 there's, <laughs> the fact that there's no irony is kind of like unappealing to most people. That's I mean yeah I mean you you know the British at this point are probably better than we know ourselves and irony is 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 how we work for better or worse probably worse. It's how you survive. <laughs> let's talk, let's talk briefly. I, I, I've been meaning to talk to you about Hamilton. Um, oh, because I because I went to see Hamilton um, a, a while ago now, and we I, saw it on on New Year's Day. Um, Ash and I that, that's New Year's Day this year. Yeah, it's really interesting because I saw it on like the second of January, like the year before. So we the New Year's Hamilton thing is the thing. that's crazy. But we we we, we went to see the London production, um, and 
I had deliberately, although they've been, been hyped for years, of course, I've been deliberately not listening to it, not like learning as little about it as possible because I wanted to experience it on stage when I, when I first saw it. And I've, I found it, I found it amazing and very moving, but I came out of the theater thinking, oh my God, Nerdcore is big now. Like it's, <laughs> it's happened. Right. Did, was that your reaction to it as well? Because I felt like, it felt just like, a massively scaled up version of something that you or front a lot or something. You know, it's a history rap. You right, know? right. That's funny, Will. I mean, I, I, you know, the post stuff is 19th century rap and yeah. Melville and like, yeah. I remember when it came out, people on Reddit were talking about this sounds like an MC Lars B-side. <laughs> like people were breaking that reference to and people were sending me links to it. And yeah. And so I was kind of like interested in it conceptually. Mm. Um I think it's amazing, yeah, that it is. It's like mainstream nerdcore, and I think that's happened in a lot of ways with like rappers talking about gaming technology and sampling yep. that stuff. What I think makes Hamilton spectacular is, yes, there's rap in it, and yes, it cleverly like references all these old school rap songs. Mm-hmm. But we talked about genre. That's yeah. just one of the frocks that it wears. It's soul. It's R and B. It's rock in a way. Yeah. And I think it's a musical theater, of course, it's musical theater, yeah. and, and it's like. I remember reading the New York Times review when it came out being like how it was exciting, but it said uh, how the how the music was so exciting on its own. And the writer said, Broadway needs Hamilton more than Hamilton needs Broadway. Yeah. And um, it also was a moment where like, you know, parents would be, it was a time in hip hop history where like these parents who remember you know 67 year olds remember run dmc when they were mm-hmm. middle-aged or when they had first had kids so it's like the the musical genre has become part of the dna of our country mm. and i wonder i think a lot of people's perspective is like is maybe the hype overweighs the historical like i don't know that maybe it's more of a product of its history and culture than it is an amazing piece of art but i would argue that I don't know. It is. It is amazing. What do you mm. think? What did you think? I, I. I mean, I think. I think it's incredible. Um, in in all sorts of ways. But I think. I think you're exactly right. That that, what it does, and it's clearly doing very deliberately with with genre. Clearly, like, um, moving always. You know, always with a little grin on its face. Again, you know, you know, all, all always joking, but never quite being comedy, right? Um, yeah. But but understanding its place. And what it is, and because I, I was thinking about it on the train on the way home, I was, I, I, I was talking about it with my wife, and um, one of the things I remember coming out of that conversation, I can't remember which of us said it now, is just like if if anyone came up to you and said, "I've written a rap musical about the first secretary of the American Treasury," uh-huh. you you'd just be like, "No, no, 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 just, no, honey, that's yeah, just can't, that's that's going to be so." disrespectful to at least one enormous group of people um like just just please just put it away Uh, you you know on paper it's an awful idea and it's so good in practice and i think it's just an amazing example of like how how art can mess with your expectations well and and have you seen obama's interview about it he's like you know when lin-manuel said he was going to do this obama was like oh good luck with that yeah 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 yeah. i I think which is which is exactly the right reaction you know he was he was completely right and the world was wrong when it made hamilton (laughs) and that's what all great pieces of art are like yeah things that shouldn't work that do and i also think something like hamilton i mean to be completely candid you know hip hop is is a culture created by like puerto rican and african american mm-hmm. hispanic people in the in the early 70s and the fact that lin manuel 
is Puerto Rican, mm-hmm. he has kind of an access and a claim to the culture that if a white person had tried to write Hamilton, Absolutely. even if it were great, I don't think it would have the, uh, it wouldn't have entered the pantheon. You know, he had to be the first to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. I, th- I, I think that's completely Because he did true. it so well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, how, how do you, as, a, as an American, <laughs> how, how, do you, how does that work? The baggage of kind of making all of these because because on the one hand yeah it's this amazing like radical kind of progressive thing to do it's to kind of cast all of these slave owning white like constitution writing dead dudes into like into roles where they're these where they're these incredible dynamic like young black and puerto rican and kind of people but yeah on, on the other hand does it does it feel that or do you worry that that is a gesture that also kind of says but these white people are really important, actually. Do you know what I mean? It kind of it kind of makes them um, part of that narrative, but it still kind of reaffirms that narrative of these were great men. It kind of uh, de-villainizes them. Yeah. Well, word? yeah, yeah. I suppose. I mean, not that. Not. I suspect they're not villains in America, apart from Burr, maybe. But but uh, but oh, maybe they are. I don't know. Well, I think that, that there's a lot of like Thomas Jefferson having owned slaves and mm-hmm. and and had children with. What Sally Hemings was his yeah, his I think so yeah and but then he gave them their freedom when um, he died I remember we went to once we were at Monticello my family's vacations we'd always go to like these historical places yeah and it was like a day where his relatives were coming to visit to be interviewed and one of his his great 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 granddaughters was an older African American woman but she had red hair mm. like him wow and, and she said something like. She was smiling. She's like, "I'm so happy. I'm still alive, and uh, I can't. I can't do nothing else but smile." I remember she said that, wow. and it was like, "Wow!" Here at this place where her, you know, her lineage comes from, I think that, um, I think that a lot of young people have a have a complicated relationship with the founding fathers. Yeah, um, because a lot of the the you know the Constitution did not make a point of acknowledging women or people of color it is all men are created equal. Okay. Yeah. Men of a certain yeah. class. And I think that's like a deep thing about uh, being an American is that we have this, 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 this kind of sheen that everything's okay and everything was done for the right reason and everything yeah. is optimistic, but there's so much of America's wealth comes from the African-American free labor, the slave labor that Absolutely. helped create the agrarian society yeah. and everything. So, um, to answer your question, <laughs> I think it's, I think it's cool because it kind of like reverts to this, just just the story itself, and it's kind of more respecting hip hop as a culture by having mm-hmm. people who are have more of a past to the culture telling this story of the American history. So that's that's my theory. What do you think? I mean, that's a, that's a nice way through it. I mean, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what I think about it, but I don't think as a as a non-American, I don't think I can think about. It. Do, do you know what I mean? Um, but but um, you can think of it academically. Yeah, I guess. yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think it's 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 really interesting because I suspect. I mean, my suspicion is, and don't get me wrong, I love it. I love everything about it, and I think it's a, a beautiful piece of writing as well. Um, but um, but I, I but 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 it sort of it seems like to me with the with the, with the casting, it it deals itself out of the kind of. American narrative of manifest destiny and kind of American exceptionalism and then sidles back into it again by kind of reaffirming the status of these, of these, these founding fathers, even though 
they are now reaffirmed in the bodies of these these other people who wouldn't have been represented in the government of the time. Yeah, um, but we're still saying like Washington, the hero. Here comes the general, right? And 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 kind of all of that. Right, right. Um, so so yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's why I asked you about it, really, because because I I I sort of feel very conflicted about that as a as, as a gesture you know one thing i didn't like about hamilton and this is might seem like very controversial to even say that sentence <laughs> uh, my wife thought it was great and she kind of maybe changed my mind a little bit about it but my initial response was something i felt that was like a kind of a lazy trope that i just didn't just felt as corny and to me was like to appeal to moms was the ideological rap battle between them about why the um federal versus the like populist perspective jefferson yeah. versus hamilton whether a battle rapping yeah the, just, cap- the cabinet battle rap yeah it just yeah. felt like like epic rack battles history it felt like a cheesy way to be like okay you guys disagree and you're debating so you're battle rapping this is like such a corny to me it felt mm. like this is an easy joke you, they could have been doing that debate writing or just talking or in a natural state it was like this is a rap musical we're gonna battle i disagree with you g it just yeah, felt yeah. lazy i don't know I, I I think that's really interesting. I I wonder though if that if what we're learning about there is that you've been on the road with Nerdcore for like fifteen years or whatever it is, and and what's obvious to you might not be obvious to other people. I don't know. It I felt th- more new to some people. I, I, you know, I think for, for for quote unquote normal Broadway people, a, a battle rap on stage yeah. was probably quite. Quite so. I mean, I don't know anything about Broadway. I have no idea what I'm talking about. Yeah. I should probably be quiet. But I don't know. But 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 but, but let me ask. Let me ask you. Kind of coming off that. Yeah. Because I know that this is something we've talked about before. It's something you've written about, m- music about, being being in this culture yourself, but being white. Like, how is that at the moment? <laughs> I I think that if you're a white person rapping now. Yeah. To make get people's attention, you have to have like face tattoos and rap about the Xanax bars you take and, and <laughs> all this like guns. And I don't know, I think with any rapper too, but I think like this might sound kind of, this might annoy some people if I say this, but if someone gives me their, their CD and it's like a, 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 a white person who's like, I make nerdy rap or this is my life and there's nothing unique about it mm. or it's not like brilliant. I, it, I feel less excited to get excited about it versus if it's a young woman of color or a young mm-hmm. transgender person because I feel like in nerdcore especially there's this period where it's like it's time to pass the mic to different people and the genres become very diverse with different people mm-hmm. but I don't think if I were starting now anyone would care and I would feel very kind of like marginalized and un like I have nothing interesting to say about the mm-hmm. pop culture I consumed in the 80s you know I think yeah. that's and I think that's a good thing because when I started, it was there weren't people like who sounded or looked like me doing this as much, and right. so and so it's it's changed in a good way where my place in it's become peripheral. Marginalized yeah. as a heterosexual cisgender white person is like a, definitely the wrong verb to use. Yeah, yeah, yes, but it you is. know what I mean. Kind of like <laughs> decented, perhaps. Yeah, and not having a place in the culture. Yeah, yeah. no, I didn't mean to say like marginalized. I meant that like it would be. No one would care. And I think that's a good thing. But that also is, <laughs> you know, there's people like Watsky and rappers who are just so ta- lyrically talented mm-hmm. that it doesn't matter that they're cisgender, white, heterosexual men. Yeah. What do you think about all that? <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I just, I, I'm, 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 I'm too British for that question, I think. I, 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 I can only watch and 
worry about it because you know as a as a white cis man teaching literature it's something to worry about all the time wherever you're looking you know your priv- right. your privilege is there every you know every day so it's just something to think about <laughs> well i'll tell you why like the th- chris frontalot and i the reason why i think we still what we do works and why it did work is i think frontalot is just so lyrically talented and interesting oh, he's amazing yeah and his music is like very he composes it like a musical he's a theater kid who yeah. started doing rap and he did it 25 years ago yeah and Chris, incredibly prolific as well prolific. i can't keep up with the albums he puts out yeah he's um i think in recent years he's 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 less prolific than he was but his catalog is so huge yeah and and um you know he he coined the nerdcore hip-hop term so he's his place in the culture is being like one of the founding fathers yeah. chris of course because of his cartoon work and his great use of melody and his great wordplay and his very unique voice mm. i think that it's good that Nerdcore is more eclectic. Yeah. And if, a, if someone is really great and talented, it shouldn't matter who they're from, who, what they look like or where they're from, I think, theoretically. Theoretically. But, but I'm sure in the academia, you're, you have to think about this and just what, what work, certain works are more politically correct than others to teach. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think about it in terms of political correctness because I think that's a uh, I think that's a trap that word. Um, but um, but there is a big emphasis at the moment within literature on decolonizing the curriculum. Um, I feel bad ending this conversation by criticizing you, but I noticed that your your new record is very white male canon. Yeah. Um, and. Um, the Dewey Decibel. The Dewey Decibel system. Yeah, all the, I think every single track on it is by a white is a book by a white man. Not not, not every between single, the world and me. Oh, uh, yes, of course. Yeah, sorry. Close. And we did demos. We did like Sylvia Plath and we did some demos that just didn't make it. Yeah. Know? Yeah. So it's interesting because it's because it's like it's meant to be sort of like American Lit 101, isn't it? That's kind of the idea. Yeah. Um but I th- we we are now trying to write courses that in some ways don't look like that because um of you know of what's not there um, on a list like that, and it is something that yeah, it is something that we think about a lot. But it's also it's also interesting because for complex reasons, most people who go to do literature at, at university in this country, at least, are, are white middle class, um, and um, that shouldn't be. But it's it's this interesting thing with yeah, who the audience is and who you're teaching. And but you can't ever throw out Shakespeare. That's a thing. No, no and, you can't. and that's like, and maybe that's an extreme re- reaction. Like my, Ashley, my wife says, like, oh well, maybe you know, maybe we we don't study Shakespeare. We st- study other people. But I'm like, he's so good though. Well, they are so good. But but right. that's the, but that's the thing, right? I mean, I, I mean, some of my colleagues would say, "Why can't you throw out Shakespeare?" At this point, you know, at, at this point, we've spent four hundred years obsessing over him. Everything worthwhile has been said. Why don't we focus on some other people? Because he helps us realize that, like, despotic, insane rulers are finite. <laughs> yeah, that love is like painful and complicated. That you know, all the things about him that makes sense of the world i mean there are other there are other writers that can get you to those epiphanies like i i i would assume i mean i don't maybe not you personally but maybe but i'm not i'm not i'm not saying anything about shakespeare but I, is it I like, like him, wasn't but, hamlet like revolutionary is that just because we've decided to the canvas well, this is the thing shakespeare that. in his in his day kind of i mean we were we were talking about this a little bit earlier in his day didn't make much of a splash like people were like oh yeah he's good he was just popular. He was just, yeah, popular. He was there, there one of you, you know one of the gang. And there's this, 
frustrating there's a frustrating record you know there are very few records of, of Shakespeare as, right. as a guy we know very little about him um, but um, there's a conversation where I think it's Johnson and one of the other playwrights of the day maybe Thomas Decker I'm not an early modernist so I'm probably mangling this story apologies to academics who are listening um, but there's a record of a conversation between them where one of them says well, what do you think of this new Shakespeare guy and the other one's like eh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and that's like it that's, that's all we've got um, and it's, it's later that he develops his crazy reputation and becomes Shakespeare you know, he only becomes Shakespeare as we, as we know him afterwards it's, it's something that's done so to why him. that's a whole yeah. other podcast it's yeah. just the, circ- the circumstance and I, I mean I, you know that that's that's a career a career long question you've asked right. me there. I, I, and there are, there'll be all sorts of people writing on it, um, and I don't know the answer. Um, but but I think I mean I think the reason Shakespeare is valuable is because we know so little of his life, and 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 that he has become something that it's it's not he's not a guy, um, not not a dead white guy. He's a cultural force in which all kinds of people have participated and can participate, um, and everyone right. everyone has. You know every possible kind of way of of, of playing those um, productions. You know the RSC is on a huge. The Royal Shakespeare Company here in in the Midlands, where we are now, um, has been on this huge kick for the last few years of kind of um, casting things, casting people you wouldn't expect, casting um, casting people uh, with prosthetic limbs, for example, casting um, casting people of other of of, of non typical heights, casting you know um, yeah. doing things to really. Uh, challenge kind of what we think Shakespeare of is doing and the, the and the thing is about Shakespeare is that he's capacious enough to kind of you can do that to him because there aren't because he's not JK Rowling he's not right. sitting behind you being like no there's only one way of doing my play and it is this way and he didn't have a Twitter account exactly so we don't know he's, he's not there to fight but 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 the sonnets tell us about his or his life theoretically mm-hmm, in that's theory. the one thing yeah that might tell us about Shakespeare yeah it, I mean it depends it depends how much you trust art to to be able to reconstruct its its maker like that i don't know it's the question of i was talking to watsky about this like you remove the um can you remove the art from the artist poe married his teenage cousin yeah so is he r kelly should i not do the raven song and like uh it's a really good question and it's historically in in literature at least most of the greats were pretty terrible people on the whole I, i i mean there are there are noble exceptions, but right. most most of these people you wouldn't want to hang out with. Um, Kerouac was not the nicest yeah, guy. No kidding. Um, my favorite my favorite poet in the world, Philip Larkin, um, in- English poet of the nineteen sixties seventies. Horrendous racist, sexist. You, you know, you, you name it. You would not have dinner with the man. But but I unfortunately happen to believe that his poetry is excellent. But I recognize that that is a really really complicated or position Lovecraft. I mean, Lovecraft, bloody uh, hell. Yeah. I want to do a Lovecraft EP, but I also don't. Yeah. But I also there's a call. Yeah. A call of Cthulhu. A call of Cthulhu. Hey, <laughs> as an academic, you are teacher. Yeah. You're 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 preserving this and you're able to put your remix, your spin on the perspective That's and it. it's cool. It's That's it's it. and I speaking of greats who aren't problematic, I'm speaking with one. When can we <laughs> expect a new faceometer record? Will it happen? When? It's gonna it's it's gonna happen. I've I've been in a fallow period. I cannot lie about that. I'm working I'm working with a, a friend of mine called Kate on a record about gardening. That's a, a side project called the Untidy Gardeners. Have you worked with Kate before? No, this is okay. this is our first collaboration, and we're we're uh, we're doing a yeah a record about. She's a professional gardener, and I have a garden, but have no idea how to how it works. Um, so together we're combining my ignorance with her with 
wisdom to make a, a, a little record of songs about the changing seasons and kind so of great. how you have a nice garden. Um, and there, but I actually have, as Faceometer, I actually have enough material for another album. It's just about finding the time to and, and the studio to go and sit down and and do it. And I hope that in, in the next couple of years there'll be there'll be something, but I don't know yet. What? To make a Faceometer album, yeah. How much time do you need if once you have the demos written and stuff? Um, an almost infinite amount of time because I'm dreadful. <laughs> do you feel like though, like, you know, I remember when you came to LA and we did all those demos, we were just writing song after song after song. You work yeah. fast. Um, well, I work fast with other people. And, 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 with, and with you, it, it was, it was, I mean, that was an amazing week for me precisely because the, the kind of staying at your place and working with you that intensively, uh. bouncing ideas off each other, allowed me to work at a speed that was really unusual for me. When I'm by myself and I don't have that motivation, um, I, I, you know, I, I write a few songs a year if I'm lucky. Um, right. And, and sort of agonize over them. And I think, you, you know, yeah it's it's that it's, it's that thing right are you are you um are you dylan or cohen right are, are you are you writing eight songs a day or are you writing two songs a year and kind of which is it dylan is the more prolific one much more prolific right. yeah yeah and 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 cohen kind of drags what about through. weights who does this kind of intermediate between the yeah, two? Yeah, yeah. And I suppose, well, I mean, the interesting thing about Waits is that there's never, there's never a single. Have you noticed that? Like, he has albums, not not songs. And I really what like that about Downtown Train? Yeah, but Downtown Train is, it's just part of the, it's just part of the end of Rain Dogs, isn't it? It's, it, it's, it becomes, it becomes a single when Rod Stewart makes it into one, right? It's, it's not Waits' right. version that is the, that's the iconic one. I think is that true? Uh, well, I I know Waits because of you and because of Front a lot. Yeah. And I remember it was with you. We were at a Me by Bought the Alice record on oh, vinyl. Man, yeah. And you were like, "That's an interesting one to start with," but I recommend it. Yeah. And um. Well, and what do you, what do you think? I think it's great. I think what I love about him is so original. Yeah. And timeless. Yes. And but that album though has kind of like a of its era production quality, which is special. Yes. You know. Um. Yeah, it's it's so atmospheric, like the, just the the, the the feel of it. I mean, before you get to the songwriting or anything like that, just as a mood, it, I, I think it's just an incredible, it's just an incredible record. The other the other thing I like about Waits is that he gives me he gives me faith because he, he proves that you can be um, enormously respected and successful without compromising on 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 your weirdness. Um, and, sure. And I think someone he's somebody who's succeeded by being by being himself um, and that gives me hope for the world. <laughs> yeah. I mean, originality, the idea of doing a faceometer record is a good one, but only you could really do it. You know what I mean? There's only one, like that's truly you that makes it special. And mm. like, uh, I don't know, great art sometimes does take a while, but I've also found like last year I did a Roger Abbott EP and it was the 30th anniversary. So I made sure I did all the songs and like, I had like two or three days to do it. And sometimes when I'm forcing myself to be quick, it's my best stuff because I'm yeah. not second guessing my impulses. Yeah. yeah, I mean, of my t of of my best songs, some some took years, literally years, of coming back to them and going over them again, and, and you know, agonizing. The irritating maze took ages. Um, it was an irritating maze itself. For and you. yeah, completely. And actually, it was weirdly the process of writing it was kind of therapeutic because because I was talking myself through the irritatingness of how irritating the song was to write. Very strange song. Um, but but. But others, but others among my best, I wrote in an afternoon. Just you know, Keats style. The mood hit. The mood hits you. Yeah. And and, um, and one of the things I find frustrating about songwriting is is that I don't feel that I don't feel that I've understood the way of doing it yet because um, 
because some of the some of my best work has happened in a completely different way to some of my other best work, and I don't know what the recipe is. I suspect there isn't one. Well, mer- inspiration is mercurial, and it's it's a matter of like it's all everything surrounding it that 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 allows great art to happen or great literature, yeah. and then allows it to then become part of a canon or find an audience or not. And it's just data, I guess, ultimately. And you're in the p- profession of deciphering it and yeah. also when it hits you creating it that's the thing sometimes i wonder what the point i'd be interested in your perspective on this although i have to go in a minute yeah um is is like where where the point is for you is is it is it writing is that what you're here for is it the recording or is it playing the shows like w- what is it at the end of the day that it's the activity that you are doing that the other things just support you know i mean i found that recently this was surprising getting married is like it's like okay well music to me is it's got to be fun and so there's fun in everything and i find the thing i enjoy the most is writing Mm -hmm. but performing older songs that people want to hear is fun but in a different way but it's like that's more like candy versus writing is like eating like a healthy salad (laughs) that's a really nice way of thinking about it because i hate writing i I love having written Um, but you're such a great writer. But, but, I, but I, well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but but I can't. But the actual process, I'm I'm um, I'm grumpy. I torture myself. I look for any excuse to. Oh, I'll just check Facebook again. You know. Or like, like in your documentary, you play Mario Kart as part of the writing process. So, yeah, that's. I mean, and I strongly believe that Mario Kart is a crucial part of the writing process. <laughs> um, and, and as a result of that, I'm very good at Mario Kart, and perhaps slightly less good at writing than I should be at this point. Um, but but yeah, I uh, but I find it I find it very I find it very frustrating. But I love playing. I love I love having done it. Yeah, I love okay. having that material to bring out and and sharing it with people. That's that's where that's where I get excited. Do your students find your music? Mm, occasionally, yeah. And do they talk to you about it ever? Is it kind of very rarely? I think uh, yeah. You some sure. some of them some of them kind of you know that they know, and some of them. Uh, you worry that they know and kind of, yeah i don't know I, I i tend to keep those two parts of my life a little bit separate and i don't know why because as we've been discussing for this whole conversation they, they do kind of inform each other in really interesting ways but when you google will tattersdale yeah i know faceometer comes right up it does it? yeah it does and they must they must they must find it what so where do you recommend our your listeners today where is the best place to discover your music and follow when the new record drops. Uh, Bandcamp, definitely. Okay. I love Bandcamp. I, uh, I love it as a as a as a listener. I love using it to find new stuff. Um, as an artist, it's um, it's the most healthy way. It's the most healthy business model for me, at least. Okay. Um, but yeah, um, um, faceometer. has everything I've ever released on it, pretty much. And faceometer.tk? Yes, main website with a blog that I don't update often enough. What is t- .tk? A Tokelau, it's an island nation in the Pacific. Oh. They they were giving away domain names in the early 2000s. <laughs> <laughs> I, okay. It looks lovely. I've never been, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, Will, can I tell you something? Yes. I'm glad we're friends. I am very glad we're friends. Thanks for driving all the way over here to talk to me, man. It's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. What, do you, so you have class today you're teaching? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, wow, I'm fortunate to get to talk to you. I don't want to deprive your students, so we'll let you go, but this has been great. It has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Friends for life. Yeah. King Phineas III was an old, brutal tyrant whose only joy was the company of his daughter, the Princess Vanessa. When the princess reached the marrying age, the king called into his throne room the award-winning designer Gautier and said... Gautier, 
are renowned for your skill at maze building. I want you to construct a labyrinth so fiendish, so disturbing, so ridden with traps and beasties that no hero can ever penetrate the central minaret in which the princess shall be confined until she's so old there will be no one to court her and she can comfort me through my last miserable days. The designer looked levelly at his king. I will have no part in such a scheme. He said. What? Thundered the king, although he'd been secretly hoping the courtier would defy him as it gave him something new to be angry about. How dare you? Let me finish my leave. Interrupted the designer. I will have no part in that scheme, but I will propose an even better one. Instead of the fiendish wonder you describe, I will build for you the irritating maze. Sixteen page long entrance forms a stat of deadly monsters. Unearthed static handrails and junk communiques And stuff you can't quite find that you had really recently Replacing brutal blades in the irritating maze I can't be bothered with this, explain it to him, Lars You see, my king, it will be the new thing None of this pitfalls and death trap bling That stuff's like a magnet for heroes questing So I build your own bread, irritating Cause no one will quest if they don't get no cred And you don't get no respects from a maze that ain't dread These farm boys, what? they're all about swinging a sword But get out the glory and love gets ignored For example, get dragons and what do you know? Every dunce in the kingdom is having to go On the other hand, fill it with toe-stubbing floors Small blinking lights that you can't quite ignore Milk bottle seals which never unpeel And use gum which under each surface congeals And no one who hears it will dare to come near it No human alive could be bothered to clear it. So this is the gist of me, me's on a beam. These heroes heroics are less than they seem. He said at length. You have spoken to me persuasively through the medium of rap. I assign you a budget of 16 million pieces of eight, or 128 times 10 to the power of six pieces. If you prefer, do not fail me. Gautier was an artist. He worked tirelessly and the maze was ready in just 18 months. Everything from the general temperature, too warm for a coat, but cold enough that you'd be uncomfortable without one, to specifics such as the paper cut machine was a coup d'etat of slight vexation. Vanessa could see every inch of the labyrinth stretched out below her minaret and watched hopefully as a series of young muscular men attempted to negotiate the outermost throws. Even initially, there were fewer of them than she had hoped and soon their numbers had diminished to zero. It was more successful than the king had dreamed. Excellent! He said, apportioning Gautier a personal reward of 378,961 pieces. But Gautier had gone already, off to another kingdom to start work on an even more dastardly project. Sixteen page long entrance forms instead of deadly monsters. Unearthed static handrails and junk communiques. Stuff you can't quite find that you have really recently Replacing brutal blades in the irritating maze Years passed and signs of age were already creeping onto young Vanessa's countenance when word of her plight reached the ears of Jeremy Richardson, a data entry clerk from Stafford. 
What to him was the promise of honour, dignity and fame? What horror was there for him in the prospect of more tedium and irritation? He had no sword, but he grasped his asthma inhaler, took six days of annual leave and set off. The following soundscape depicts his struggles in the maze. last and most fiendish test lay in Vanessa's minaret, which Jeremy Richardson finally reached at the heart of the maze. Up the spiral stairway towards the captor's chamber, an overweight tourist was climbing with lamentable slowness. Even Jeremy Richardson's iron patience was taxed to its limit as he waited politely behind the woman, who occasionally stopped to photograph details of the minaret's design. But his tenacity won out and he carried the princess out of the tower, out of the labyrinth, and towards the distant sunset. remained intact, sprawling and malignant, and locals still will not go near it. Yo, freaking tight. Thank you, Will. Oh, I wanted to clear something up. So we talk during the interview. He uh, talks about grading papers. And then my head, I'm like thinking about, always thinking about ICP. I'm like, yo, Will, you referenced two ICP albums that came out before the sixth Joker's card. Okay. The Pendulum 
came out around the time of the six jokers card but the calm that was like years after so a lot of jugglers are listening like yo lars you miss messed up the chronology what's up whoop whoop and i'm like yo i sure did congrats icp they just had the 20th annual gathering of the juggalos and when we went last year megaran and i fantastic insane surreal experience so enough about that dan bull is next week so dan bull I've known this dude for a long time. We were going to get Ouija Mac on the uh, Julius Caesar track because it's like an ICP reference track, but Ouija Mac couldn't do it. Dan Bull, freaking responsible guy, got us the verse, killed it, stepped up, made a great video. So next week is our interview with Dan Bull. He got to start doing like a lot of really cool YouTube video game rap and branch out into other topics. And it was really awesome to talk to him about the origins of his career where he's going now, his life. He's a great guy. Dan Bull, the man. Check out our Julius Caesar video. That's what's up. I'm MC Lars. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for supporting on Patreon. We're going to start doing the Patreon stories soon. So sign up. You can win a free t-shirt if you call the Google voice number, which I'm going to post and tell me a story about your life. Hope you're all having a great summer and I'll talk to you all soon. Take care, everyone. Bye.